I'm going to preach on all of the readings. We have a very great story in 2 Samuel, David and Bathsheba. Um, This is completely off the subject, but uh, T.S. Eliot wrote a poem called Little Gidding, and it was about, um, well, it's about Little Gidding. Little Gidding was a place in Huntingtonshire where uh, there was an attempt by a man named Nicholas Farrar to found a kind of mixed monastic community of, of people. Uh, on their estate. He was a deacon. He was never ordained priest. And he had this little community at Little Gidding. And uh, that's a very interesting thing. I was very interested in it when I was in seminary. But the reason I'm mentioning it is the brain works in mysterious ways. And uh, one of Farrar's brother's wife, wives was named Bathsheba. This is in the 1600s, so that'll place it in place it in time, so you have some idea. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the story from Second Samuel. Uh, this is a commercial message again. If you read, want to read the Bible in the sort of the narrative part, you can start by reading First uh, and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. They're interesting, and uh, so on. I'm a little less critical of people who want to read the Bible from the beginning to the end than I used to be, but I think if you read selectively in the Bible, it probably will be easier. But clearly, people have got to read the Bible more than they do now. And, you know, I I need to say this. Even fundamentalist Christians are ignorant about the biblical text. Or they get together in Bible studies and they sit and read texts from the Bible that are therefore pre-interpreted for them and the conclusion to which you're to come has already been decided by the way in which this thing is discussed and how it's framed. So uh, everybody needs to become a student of the Bible. And uh, I continue to realize that even after all my... Somebody said the other day that I heard, I, I feel this way, I guess, that I am educated way beyond my intelligence. <laughs> so, so, so we need we need to have we we need to always remind ourselves that that's a, a possibility. So then I'm going to say something about Ephesians and say something about the gospel. I thought that one of the threads that may be kind of obscure that runs through this is power and how we understand the exercise of power and what kind of power are we speaking about. And there are at least uh, two, maybe three kinds that are talked about in these readings. David has not gone with his soldiers to battle. He stayed in Jerusalem, and he's lounging around. And one day he gets up and he looks down from where his house is, And he sees this very beautiful woman who's taking a bath. It's actually a mikvah in, 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 you know, traditional Judaism. That's what she's doing. And uh, he sees her. And, you know, I can imagine, who is is that? So he says, send for her. That's Uriah the Hittite's wife. Every time I hear the name Uriah, I think of the... 1970s rock band Uriah Heep 
But Uriah Heep was a Dickens character, not, not, in the, not in the Bible. But Uriah the Hittite is there, and he's returned. But he's, uh, David has, got to get, has connected up, as they say, with Bathsheba, and she's pregnant. And so he's trying to figure out, what, what am I going to do about all this? You know, how am I going to handle this? Uriah the Hittite has returned, and he says, oh, that's a relief. He'll just go visit Bathsheba, and now we won't, I don't have to worry about who's, whose baby is this, right? So Uriah the Hittite has other ideas because we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the soldiers who were engaged in a righteous cause are supposed to remain abstinent from sexual relations during the period in which they're waging battle or preparing. So Uriah the Hittite, when David says, why don't you go down to your house and wash your feet? There's a double meaning there. I'm not going to get into that, but that's in the Hebrew. <laughs> So uh, he, he says, uh, you know, and he said, are you asking me to do this when all of my men are getting ready for battle and we're all here together and I'm with my people? I'm not going to, I can't do that. So David is still working on the idea and he thinks to himself, well, uh, maybe the thing to do is to uh, get him drunk and then tell him to go down to his house. And he's successful in getting him drunk, but Uriah still doesn't go. He just goes to a couch in David's house and passes out. So David then gives Uriah a letter and says, I want you to take this to, to your superior uh, in, in, in soldier. Hand him this message for me. And the message is, put Uriah the Hittite into the worst part of the fighting so he will be killed. And they do, and he does get killed. So Bathsheba has a baby, and the baby doesn't live. The baby dies. But later on, David and Bathsheba will now be together, and she will have another baby, and his name will be Solomon. So this is a a narrative in 2 Samuel about the succession of the dynasty of King David and King Solomon. It is some of the most beautiful Hebrew prose in the Hebrew Bible, and many biblical scholars believe that it was written uh, less than or, or maybe a generation after David's life, so it's entirely possible that what was written is very fresh in terms of, of what went on, what happened and, and the details of it. But it's uh, a story, in my opinion, of a good, per, a good man gone bad or betraying in the course of things uh, that he has feet of clay like we all do. And we both misuse our power and are also capable of doing things in the midst of our cleverness, our greatness, our abilities, uh, that are um, not good. And how do we understand uh, what that means? How do we understand uh, the location of our moral center? What does that all mean? 
I'm talking about this book. I'll have more to say when I come back from vacation. But this book by Jonathan Haidt, The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Disagree About Religion and Politics. And I'm just going to pause on the David story in a minute, say the abuse of power. And it, it has to do, of course, the David story with a moral behavior. But Jonathan Haidt is what they call a moral psychologist. So he does a lot of research and, and uh, questionnaires and interviews with people. And he talks about brain science and a whole lot of this kind of stuff. And one of the images that he uses in the book is that um, he talks about the man and the elephant. Uh, Mahut <coughs> riding the elephant. Okay? So the Mahut is our reason and our sensibilities. And we're on, perched on the elephant and we're trying <coughs> to steer the elephant. And the elephant is our intuitions and our non-rational parts of us. So the mahout can guide the elephant, but if the elephant goes like this and keeps going, you've got to follow the elephant because he can't. He's, too, he's powerless to be able to get the elephant to go in the direction the elephant doesn't want to go if they don't want to go. Right? And so he revives something that has been criticized greatly in the last, a long time. There was a famous Scottish philosopher in the 18th century named David Hume. And David Hume said, reason is the slave of the passions. And he believes that that uh, is probably true Remember what Ralph Qualls' famous statement is around here that an attorney told him a long time ago. Ralph, you can't reason somebody out of something they didn't use reason to get themselves into. <laughs> so why he finds this important is that uh, he breaks down uh, into six areas uh, how people think about moral behavior, whether they're conservative, or liberal. And it's care, fairness, liberty, loyalty, authority, and sanctity. And very liberal people focus on only the first two, care and fairness. And other people would say, more conservative people, they think liberty, loyalty, authority, and sanctity are also important. Actually, I do too, and I think I'm a liberal. Right? But think about the culture in which we find ourselves. Right? Uh, a lot of talk about victims and how, and harm, how making moral decisions are made on the basis of not causing harm. Right? But some people could say, well, if you want to maintain some other things that are important to human beings, there may be a little harm that happens here. Right? We find that not tolerable. We don't like it. And he based, part of basing his thing on this, he did questionnaires, interview people all over the, in South America and in India. And he lived in a town in India for a long time, for a year, 
or more, and there's a university there, I don't know where it was. And he said, here I am in a bunch of people who spend one or two hours a day on what I consider absolutely meaningless religious rituals. I go to a professor's house, and I sit in the house, and I'm, we're all served by the women. They never speak. They're here, and they go. And he rehearses the, whole, the life there. And he said, when I first got there, I said to myself, this is just absolutely outrageous. And he said, I grew to know these people and, and have deep affection for them. And I began to do some thinking about uh, how do I hold steadfast to care and fairness and leave liberty, loyalty, authority, and sanctity out of the picture. So I would guess that he would say, he calls himself a secular atheist, secular liberal atheist. But he's beginning to think that maybe some of these other values have some value. And uh, I'm, no, I'm not sure I'm so willing to get rid of care and fairness by any stretch of the imagination, but these other things may be important, at least from time to time. And he thinks it's particularly important in the political discourse in this country. That each side, I, I, I do believe that we're divided right down the middle in this country, right? And both sides are absolutely implacable about how it is that they think things ought to be. And both sides claim reason and its necessity as how they arrived at these positions. So, think about whether you believe that reason is the servant slave of the passions. Anyhow, Paul, or the author of the Ephesians, says today, is speaking about God's sovereignty and God's power, and he locates the power of God in this particular passage in God's love. And that all of you who are in Christ are able now to be ambassadors for God's unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness. I should say that part of this other thing would be the sovereignty, what I just said about Jonathan Haidt, there's a whole lot of Christians in this country who believe that um, we don't understand God's love, forgiveness, and acceptance as unconditional. Right? That Ernest's great line about accepting Jesus when you were a kid as your savior and you're supposed to be clicked in and you now have done the, done the deed uh, the other issue is you've got to walk on eggs for the rest of your life in the event that you might uh, crush one and then really get into hot water again. Lose it. Lose your salvation. So I would say, this is obviously an interpretation, I would say uh, that Paul is driving at the idea that we need to um, focus on the love of Christ and the power of God which assists us in that ability to uh, see that. Personally, and to reflect it back to others in some way as we live. 
Lord Acton is often misquoted. Uh, Lord Acton, you know, uh, said this, all power tends to corrupt. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Because you and I have little locations where we have power, right? In families. I remember, what's Dr. Phil? Dr. Phil was listening to a phone-in thing on TV. And a guy phones in and said, Dr. Phil, I, I need to have your advice about something. We are redecorating our apartment. And my wife has some ideas about how we think this uh, ought to be decorated and what we ought to do. And uh, I'd like to have some input into how this apartment gets redecorated. And Dr. Phil said, why? <laughs> Why? Don't do that. You know? So sometimes, you know, you let the power operate the way it needs to, to operate in, in some way. You know, I think that was, that was wisdom, a good response. Now, the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus is, these are obvious, I hope you can see that we have two stories here. We have the feeding of the 5,000, and we have Jesus walking on the water, stilling the storm. Mm -hmm. So obviously an editor put these together in the gospel to get it, you know, to, to, for, for purposes. For hermeneutical reasons, maybe, for maybe, uh, interpretive reasons. So Jesus uh, feeds the 5,000. And this particular passage from John, we didn't read the Mark version because the lectionary wanted us to read the John version because it is very, the imagery is extremely Eucharistic. Mother Morrison, I believe, is going to preach a three-part series on all of the bread gospels in August, which I always miss when I'm not here, so she can do it. And in any case, uh, it's, a, it's filled with Eucharistic imagery. Jesus takes the bread and blesses it, and then he gives it out. This famous book by Dom Gregory Dix, The Shape of the Liturgy. He used to talk about the fourfold shape of the liturgy. And I still uh, would say that this is the best way to understand uh, the, the, the Eucharist itself although other scholarship has come in to play in some places. But it's this. Jesus takes it, he blesses it, he breaks it, and he gives it. So when you go to the Eucharist, if it's the Eucharist, the bread is taken, it's blessed, that's the offertory. Taken, blessed, broken, given. So that's sort of the reductionist way to, and a good way to understand the Eucharist. And geez, this is a story about the power of God at work where we have abundance. God's power meets our lack in every area, right? Paul says that we need to participate in this a couple of two or three weeks ago where he said we need to figure out how we can match our abundance to other people's needs. That doesn't just mean physical feeding. It means emotional, <clears throat> emotionally, right? In terms of caring and so on. 
So we see this made manifest in the story of the feeding of the... This is the only miracle that appears in all four of the Gospels. So we talk about this in terms of, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke being one strand of the tradition, and then the John writings are another tradition altogether. But in this particular case, uh, something... There was a permeable membrane, I guess, where this story was around uh, in a lot of different places and in terms of what it is. So then, bang, we go and they get in the boat. They're gonna, Jesus goes off by himself. Another passage where con- the contemplative life is reinforced in its importance or the need for a private time and meditation. Jesus goes off by himself to pray and be alone. And so his disciples get in the boat, and they're going uh, along, and um, there's a storm in the, in the water, and all of a sudden they see Jesus walking on the water. You know, this, there. And he stills the storm. And they're not sure who, who immediately, and he says, it is I. So here's a commercial message for doing a little research. In the Greek text, Jesus says, I am. I am. Which one of the names for God in Exodus when Moses asked the burning bush, who shall I say sent me? I am. I am. Being. Thought, thinking itself. That's the deal. So Jesus says, I am. And it's, it, it is another story about how God has mastery over the natural forces. And in this particular case, Jesus in the text identifies himself with that, right? There's a lot of interpretive things that we can talk about in that area, but I, I find that a powerful thing. I am, you know. The storm is stilled. So if we were to sit there and meditate about that, do we believe that God is present to us to be able to still our internal storms? The storm and stress of life? Mm -hmm. The way in which we uh, have to deal on a daily basis with a lot of irritation and a lot of resentment and uh, also a lot of anxiety about whether we're going to get it all done? Is God present? How 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 do we connect to that in some way? which is part of the, the spiritual life, finding the ways and the means to do that. So this week, think a little bit about uh, how you use your power in big and small ways. Think a little bit about God's loving care, his unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness And always remember that uh, Christian people believe in God's abundance. We don't believe in a zero-sum game. And Jesus continuously preaches and teaches about that uh, in his earthly ministry and calls us to model that now. Amen.